Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and this smoke is really a rain. A rain. Well, I've never heard that word. Yeah, a rain is something which makes you sneeze. Oh. And I know we talked about the smoke last time, but it's only gotten worse. Oh, yeah, it's way worse right now. Um, I want to thank my mom for just bringing my air purifier over because I'm really struggling with everything right now. It sucks. <laughs> Same. I've been like coughing and sniffling for days. Yes. So mm-hmm. again, if we sound nasally, it's it's not our fault. It's it's the wildfires. It's fault. The wildfires. And now there's another one. Okay, there's one east to us where they've evacuated Oak Ridge. There's one north of us where they evacuated some campgrounds. And I think the one south of us is uh, maybe getting under control. I think so. I haven't heard as much about that one lately. Yeah, but it's like we're in a valley, so we just get all this fun smoke. Yeah, it all just kind of settles over us. It sucks. So, But right now, we are safe. Just to make that clear, we are not in any clear and present danger. Yes. And it's also the day we're recording is 9-11. So... Um, just want to say, you know, we'll never forget that. Nope. We certainly will not. So, all right. Well, Courtney, it's your question time. It is. Uh, so I've got kind of a different kind of question today a little bit. Um, but here goes. So Trisha, do you have a favorite inspirational quote or saying? And if so, what is it? I do. It's by Socrates, actually. Okay. And it's know thyself first. It's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Because I kind of think that when you actually know yourself, then you can make better decisions that will help you down the road and be um, valuable to you. Right. Absolutely. I like it. Simple, powerful, to the point. And very, very old. Yes, indeed. How about you? I do. Um, So mine is uh, from a... Part of a poem by Trigori. Um, I've never heard of that, but <laughs> him, her? Him. Okay. Um, and it says, clouds are floating in my life, no longer to bring rain or usher storms, but to add color to my sunsets. That's nice. It's like silver lining type of situation? Kind of, yeah. Or looking at things from a different perspective. Well, and as a photographer, I always like having clouds in my landscapes. I think it makes them look much more pretty. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. cool. Well, that was a fun one. I'm yeah. glad that I actually had a quote in my head because had I not, like, had that quote, you know, memorized for years and years and years, I don't – it would have been something from the movies or something like that. <laughs> Which would have been okay. Yeah. Right? We all have things that stick with us for whatever yeah. reason. I definitely quote movies all the time. Silly ones. Mm-hmm. Because I tend to rewatch movies um, and reread books, which I found out is something to do with having anxiety. Yeah, it's all about knowing how it's going to end, so mm-hmm. it's comforting. Yep. So then I learned to uh, memorize several things, only because I've seen them over and over and over again. That makes sense. Yeah. It's not like I have an eidetic memory like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, theory but, you know, it's just uh, memorization. Absolutely. Okay, well, good question. And Courtney, it's time to recap. Arthur Shawcross. Yes. So, in our last episode, we talked about um, a lot of really weird, disturbing things that he claimed to have done. And we talked about, ultimately, him killing two children, Mm -hmm. sexually assaulting two children, Mm -hmm. 
and ultimately being charged with manslaughter and being sentenced to 25 years in prison. Right. The deal was if he confessed to killing Karen, or sorry, if he, yeah, if, if he pled guilty to killing Karen for the manslaughter charge and then also confessed to killing Jack, he would get 25 years. Right. Um, so anyhow, so now we're going <clears> to <throat> look at Artie during prison. Some of the first psychological evaluations of Artie this time around were done by two prison psychiatrists, and here are some of their findings. This is a quote. Evidence of personality defect, in good contact, well-oriented, no discrete disturbance in thought pattern, pleasant, cooperative but anxious, apprehensive, mildly depressed, could appreciate humor but states he had considered taking his life, delusions specifically denied by inmate. Typically sociopathic, the killer showed no signs of guilt or remorse. <clears throat> so in in the then the psych excuse me, the psychiatrist went on to report that he seemed totally concerned about himself and the penalty which he must endure and is apparently without conscience in the matter. It is the opinion of these interviewers that the need for psychotherapy will be difficult with the inmate because of apparent intellectual deficiency and weakness of superego. So Courtney, this is like some Freudian stuff here, right? The the id, the ego, and the super ego. Um, and I haven't really seen one of these um, psychologist, psychiatric interviews or, you know, whatever that kind of specifically references the super ego. What do you think? And also, Artie was also placed on Librium during this time as well. Yeah, so to kind of take that whole analysis and, you know, translate it into simple terms – um, the psychiatrist is saying that Artie was not really significantly mentally ill, but he is a sociopath who only cares about himself, essentially. Um, and you can't really argue too much about that. Um, and you're right, we don't see a lot of Freudian analysis these days. Um, and in general, I'm not a huge fan of him or his theories. Uh, but in this case, a weakness of superego actually kind of seems to fit. So to kind of just review kind of what this is. So our, our friend, Sigmund Freud, believed that the human psyche was essentially divided into three parts, the id, the ego, and the superego. So the id is the more primitive state of mind, you know, focused wholly on pleasure and, and seeking um, those like instinctual needs. And then the superego on the other end of it is kind of like that moral compass that is all about like rule abiding and being cautious and... Um, that kind of thing. And then the ego is kind of like the manager that helps to balance out the two in a realistic way. So saying that Artie has a weak superego means that he basically has little or no morals, which, mm -hmm. again, seems to fit. Yeah. So Artie um, was beaten in Attica, the prison he was at, to the point where he was actually transferred to a different prison. It's called Greenha Greenhaven. And that's was, you know, in hopes that his crimes wouldn't be discovered. Child molesters and killers still don't do well in prison. And at his new prison, the guards quickly thought he was kind of weird. They also suspected his fainting spells were just a way for him to get attention. So he would do this, you know, constantly. He had more psychiatric interviews at this new prison, and the findings were that he was a dangerous, schizophrenic pedophile. He apparently heard voices when he was depressed. He also had a fantasy life that he seemed to prefer, excuse me, to prefer and, um, quote, oral erotic fixation with need for maternal protection, end quote. 
He confused the mental health staff. He often seemed a typical sociopath, but then he would lapse into a depression and ask for help to figure out why he did what he had done to the two children. Further neurological examinations showed no impairment, but that he was just a psychopath with, quote, sane but suffering from behavioral defects, including a lack of conscience and empathy. So they just keep seeing this over and over again. They're like, they were so confused. The more you read the book, the more you realize he, the, the psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, they're just perplexed by him. But they could, they kept saying, he has no empathy. He's a psychopath. He's a sociopath. Um, word did get out in his new prison about what he had done. And a threat was made that he would be piped. I'm not sure what that was. I'm assuming being beaten by a pipe. Um, Arthur was so scared that he refused to leave his cell for a parole meeting. He was forcibly moved from his cell where he promptly bit two guards cut another guard with a shiv that he had, threw his paints all over his cell, and then lit his bed on fire. It took 10 officers to subdue him and take him to the infirmary. He was sedated with Valium, but three days later he was able to scream, quote, fuck you, I'll kill you both. Well, wait till I get out. I'll kill you both. He tore up his belongings and he lit his bed on fire again. He was then sedated again. Anytime Arthur was walking near other inmates, they would spit on him and yell at him. He was in several fights, with one of them ending with a cut to his Adam's apple and right eye and also cuts to his forehead and lip. Lucky for him, he was still a huge guy that was incredibly strong. And I guess after about three years, the fighting stopped. They must have got bored of it. I don't know. He was still name-called, and occasional things were thrown at him, but that was about it. Courtney, do you have any thoughts? Um, so one thing I'd like to point out is that hearing voices does not necessarily mean that you have schizophrenia. Um, and I don't think that Arthur does. It's not uncommon for severe depression to include what's called like psychotic features, um, including auditory hallucinations. And as for, you know, those outbursts of behavior, I would assume those were either, you know, intentional and he knew that acting this way would result in being separated from the general population um, or possibly a result of um, kind of that impulsivity that we've seen that may or may not be related to multiple concussions mm -hmm. and head injuries like we talked about last time. So Arthur decided to file from divorce. Arthur also decided... <laughs> Arthur also decided to file for divorce from his wife, Penny, and he cited cruel and inhumane treatment. Did I mention he got married again last week? I don't remember. I think so. Okay. So this is like, yeah. So I don't know. He, he apparently Penny was cruel and inhuman to him, whatever, dude. <laughs> so now he's divorced again. Meanwhile, Arthur was finding a pattern of existence in prison. He still resisted therapy and refused to enter into the prison's sex offender program. On May 27, 1977, one of his counselors noted in his file that Arthur refused group therapy. It was, quote, has a great deal of shame and remorse about the offense and, in fact, doesn't think he is ready or deserves to be released. Likes institutional life, end quote. One officer noted in his file that Arthur was a huge parole risk. Arthur was routinely denied parole. He did try to get out, but his file at this time was full of risky behavior as well as the outcry of the public every time he did come up for parole. During his sentence, he did get a GED and he took some college courses. He learned how to be a carpenter and a locksmith and he learned how to cook and to garden and to do electrical work, among other things. Throughout his time in prison, Shawcross baffled psychiatrists. 
his back and forth and what he recalled about his life, his lack of empathy one day versus his contrition the next day was very confusing. He would be severely depressed at times and other times full of energy and humor. The only thing that was a consensus was that he was still dangerous. He would kill again. That was agreed agreed upon across the board. The following was one of the most detailed explanations of behavior. Quote, Inmate grew up in a family institution in which a masculine identity would have been extremely threatening to adopt as a result of his mother's extremely abusive control over the inmate's father. Inmate seems to be the sort of person who easily gets into a downward spiral of poor self-image and weak personality structure, which exacerbate his sexual hyperstimulation and are in turn further weakened by it. The inmate becomes more and more likely to vent his emotions in increasingly primal ways such as arson, incest, sexual violence, or sex with children. Because of this inmate's early sexual stimulation and his weak personality structure, he is essentially unable to contain his inner drives. For this inmate, sexual stimulation is as uncontrollable as heroin addiction might be to others. But because this inmate was brought up essentially by himself, his stimulations are likely to take a ruminative turn toward primal satisfaction and are likely to surface in a manner which will be found socially abhorrent. The writers do not feel that the inmate had any conscious desire when his blood is cool to be a bad person or to hurt others. However, the inmate has proved himself to be an extremely unusual person and one whose actual inner workings are probably completely beyond comprehension to any of us. Okay, so I'm going to try to decipher this, Courtney, and you tell me how I did. These psychiatrists believe that because of the way his mother treated his father and perhaps him, coupled with the way that he apparently was on his own uh, for most of his childhood, that he became an unstable person who sought release with and gratification in any way regardless of social mores. This includes an incestual relationship with his sister, allegedly, uh, pedophilia and violence. This typically happens when he is angry or feeling emasculated. The intensive drive for this release is akin to a drug addiction, but if he's not angry, he's a pleasant human being who would not think of being violent. Courtney? That was really good. I'm impressed. Thanks. I'm learning. Yeah. um, There are really just a couple of things that I would add. Um, You know, first, that kind of those feelings of low self-worth are likely tired to feeling left out or abandoned by his mom, um, who very clearly favored his siblings, Mm -hmm. as we learned in part one. Um, And then, as a result of not being parented enough, he never really learned how to manage his emotions and sexual urges appropriately, which is why they are coming out in very immature ways. Um, And then just the last thing would be, this wasn't included in the statement, um, but the potential impact of, you know, brain damage from his head injuries, which would just sort of amplify all of this instability of moods and behaviors. But otherwise, I'm impressed. Good job. Thank you. I'm I'm trying to learn as we go along. (laughs) Well, by his ninth year of incarceration, Artie did finally agree to counseling sessions and seemed to have an improved demeanor. During his parole meeting two years later, he refused to participate because a woman was on the parole board, however. He did eventually acquiesce and downplayed his involvement with the killing of the children during his interview. So he didn't make parole. Well, apparently Artie learned how to play the game eventually. He was constantly denied parole and was noted to be a homicidal risk over and over again. But he managed to convince one therapist that he was cured because on April 28, 1987, Arthur Shawcross, child rapist and killer, was released 14 and a half years into his 25-year sentence. 
what the actual fuck. I don't care if he was cured or changed or whatever. For the crimes he committed, he should not have been let out of prison ever. If child killing does not get you a life sentence, or at the very least, a completion of a prisoner's whole sentence, then what does? Courtney? It certainly is really frustrating when the legal system doesn't really seem to provide appropriate justice. You know, and as for the therapist who worked with him and determined him to be safe for release, if it was me, I would probably feel so much guilt about what would happen next and would really struggle to trust my own judgment after that. You know, I mean, that being said, right, like sociopaths can be really charming and convincing because they have absolutely no qualms about lying straight to your face. Well, and it's not just that therapist, like, the parole board was ultimately the one that made the decision. Right. And had they looked at all of those psychiatric assessments done over the 14 years he was in prison, and all of them were like, no, homicidal risk, homicidal risk. <laughs> right, right. Just, I mean, I don't know. But I can't remember the number. It was a huge amount of number of prisoners at the time that were released in New York every year. So overcrowding again. Yeah, that's always been a problem. I know. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but... So Shawcross was headed to the town of Binghampton, New York, um, after he was... Binghamton. Oh. I went to college in upstate New York, so I recognize a lot of these names. Binghamton. There you go. It's spelled Binghampton. It is. (laughs) (laughs) And the parole officer had this to say regarding Shawcross's release into the community he worked at. Quote, at the risk of being dramatic, the writer considers this man to be possibly the most dangerous individual to have been released to this community in many years. So what I kind of gathered, like, this book really goes in-depth on the parole process. Um, When he got out of prison, they wanted him to stay in, you know, sort of the area he was familiar with. They didn't put him back where he had committed the crimes in a new town. Um, And when they do that, they have to let the local authorities and the local parole officers know, you know, what's going on and who's being released so that they can keep tabs on him. So that was what this parole officer had to say. Um, can you imagine, Courtney, how scary this would be knowing that a child rapist and killer was in your neighborhood? I mean, his psychological evaluations throughout most of his incarceration were very scary. He was not considered a safe person. Yeah, I mean, as a, a parent or as a, you know, officer, it would be absolutely terrifying to know that a person who has murdered a child, too, actually, was living in my neighborhood. You know, and and although the public is not necessarily given access to all the details of crimes and release, um, you know, likely a lot of what they saw was what was published in the media. Um, And honestly, though, as scary as he already appeared to the public, he was probably even more dangerous than they feared. Yeah. So part of his parole included weekly visits with his parole officer and mandatory therapy. However, the parole officers were overworked and Artie stopped going to therapy soon after he was freed. Artie had a pen pal that he wrote to in prison, and her name was Rose, and he would meet up with her sometimes. He was not supposed to be around children or playgrounds, schools, etc., or out past 11. But as with his therapy requirement, he didn't follow the rules. He was gallivanting around the town, doing whatever he pleased, whenever he pleased, wherever he pleased. So prior to Arthur's release, one of the town's policemen where he was now placed had a 12-year-old daughter who was murdered by a pedophile not long before. Um, When this officer, his name was Officer Lindsay, found out that the parole board had put Arthur into his town, a town full of kids, he was 
really pissed off. He was so pissed off, in fact, that he tipped off a news organization with the information. The news, uh, the news contacted the parole board to get some information for the three-part story they wanted to run, and that really set things in motion. The parole board decided they needed to move Shawcross pronto, because minutes after that newscast broke, angry callers were contacting the police, the news station, whatever, and several had threatened to go to Arthur's re- residence and, quote, take care of him. But by this time, he had already been moved uh, by the parole board, and it was for his own safety. Um, so after that, Arthur was sent to Delhi. Did I say that right? I think it's just Delhi. Delhi? Like the okay. Indian town. Okay. Um, and he was glad that he was sent there because that's where his pen pal Rose lived. Um, again, the local police were notified of who the parole board was sending their way. The local police chief did not like it, not at all. The parole board asked that his crimes not be disclosed to the community, which I kind of think is bullshit, but whatever. However, the cop was out with a bunch of the local, you know, guys when they asked him about the newcomer. And, you know, he didn't get into specifics, but he did say the new guy in town was on parole for murder. Quote, technically, I was supposed to keep it under my hat about the parole, but I told friends, a couple of teachers, law enforcement, God forbid if this guy hurt some kid and I kept it quiet that he was living there. They'd have hung me and thrown my body out to the crows, end quote. I can understand where he's coming from. Um, Artie got a job, but it got to the point that if people saw him walking on the street, they would run over to the other side. They were scared of him. Artie actually called the police because of all the threats he was getting, and he was scared. Artie was staying in an apartment with Rose, whose landlady was not happy that Artie was there. She was able to legally evict Rose because having Arthur there was violating the lease. So they left the apartment after only two weeks of being there. And they moved 20 miles away, but were discovered again within the week. They had to move again as their lives were threatened by citizens. This time, they moved to the third largest city in New York, Rochester, After two weeks in Rochester, the parole board finally told the local police about Shawcross, but did not tell them of his crimes. They were concerned that if he was driven out again, they would have to find a place for him outside of New York State. Eventually, the two settled into a routine, and no one was the wiser. They had no clue that he was a child-raping murderer. Not even the local police knew much about his past. He was still required to go to therapy, but he struggled to pay for it. He did go occasionally, enough to convince his therapist that he was really on his way to recovery. Courtney, anything you'd like to say? You know, I have some some mixed feelings about this whole process. You know, Artie is a specific case in which he really is dangerous no matter where he lived. And I can understand, like, the police and the public's desires to not have him live in their town. And at the same time, he sort of technically had, like, paid his penance, so to speak. He went to jail. He did his time. He was released from jail. And like all people, I mean, deserved to be able to live his life without constant threat of vigilante justice. Right. It's definitely a double-edged sword because um, I also think the public deserved to know, the police at least, deserved to know why he was there. Right. And um, at this point, the parole board was not risking it again. So they didn't even tell the police, you know, the exact nature of his crimes. Right, right. During this time, he and Rose lived together like man and wife. In fact, the plan was for them to wed after Rose's divorce was final. Um, So Rose's family did not like the fact that she was dating Arthur. They kind of disowned her. Um, And when she was driven out of Delhi, she was 
really kind of upset. She had grown up there. She'd worked there for years. Um, but yeah, that's, she followed her man, I guess. So Rose was a larger woman and Arthur would comment on how good looking the young skinny girls on TV looked. So Rose would attempt to lose weight. In fact, when they had sex or attempted to anyhow, as Artie still, you know, struggled with that, Artie would complain that Rose hurt him when she got on top. Artie was the pot calling the kettle black at this point, as he promptly put on quite a bit of weight when he got out of prison. Arthur started to beat Rose as he did his previous wives. Had Rose informed the parole officer of what Artie did, as her mother-in-law suggested, so Artie's mom, um, that she do, then he would have been arrested for, you know, violating his parole. But she was too afraid to lose him, so she kept quiet. Courtney, I have no clue how Artie does this, but he keeps getting women. Um, during his uh, time with Rose, he started an affair with Clara Neal. Eventually, he does marry Rose, but continues his affair with Clara. All the while, he is still trying to get his mother's approval. He would call her and write her and send her gifts, all of which she insulted or refused or generally disapproved of. Uh, he spoke of this one where he really saved up a lot of money for him um, and went and got her like a silver tea set or something like that and sent it to her for Christmas. And she just said it was crap, threw it away. Um, and then every time, you know, this kind of stuff would happen, um, he would get really upset and he would take it out on Rose. And they had a weird tripod of a relationship at this point. So according to Clara, Artie was, you know, wonderful with her. He loved her and he would tell her how much he preferred her to Rose, his wife. And he started to tell Rose that she had to stay home while he went out with Clara. But Clara insisted that that wasn't right. So the three of them would all go out together. Artie was always borrowing Clara's car to do things, and he and Rose had, like, opposite work schedules, so they really didn't see each other that often. I, I don't understand what these women, all of his wives and girlfriends, for that matter, you know, saw in him. I've seen his interviews. I've done the research. He's not anyone I would ever want to be with, and he's not physically attractive. Courtney, you read the book. The woman's point of views were elaborated on. What do you think is up with all of this? You know, I think this this might fall may fall a little bit into kind of cliche territory, but some women see a man with problems and just want to kind of fix him with love. You know, and Artie definitely could tell his stories about his past in a way that left him seeming like a sympathetic victim that just wasn't loved enough as a child, especially by his mother. And, you know, add in the ability to lie and manipulate others without any empathy or care. And it could have been easy for the right women who had damage of their own to really just fall for him. I, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. I just it, I can't comprehend it in my own mind. Yeah. I mean, it's not logical. I, okay. It's, you know, it's very much an emotional reasoning. Um, when I when we compare Artie with some of the other serial killers, he's not known for his charm. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know, but whatever. He was getting the women. He had them all all the time. He always had girls. Um, wasn't always able to, you know, be sexually satisfied by them because of his own, in uh, you know, problems in that area. But I don't know. Anyways, um, do you want to? discuss anything else because we're going to stop here today do you, do you want to discuss any further diagnoses you might have or any other uh, observations you've made you've uh, made throughout this podcast today 
Um, I think the only thing really is kind of falling back on the head trauma. I know Mm -hmm. we talked about that a a lot in part two, um, but it really seems to me like that could be like the piece that all of these like psychiatrists back in the 70s and 80s were missing Mm -hmm. um, and why none of his actions made sense. Um, And it could be because he had, you know, one or more traumatic brain injuries, which inherently, you know, lead into what can often look like completely nonsensical mm-hmm. um, behavior. Um, and they did say they did neurological mm-hmm. examinations on him. However, back then, they probably, you know, brain scans or whatever the examinations were, were mm-hmm. probably not uh, what they would be later on or today. So, right, right. You know. There wasn't as much technology when it comes to, like, you know, fMRIs yeah. and not as detailed so, yeah, imaging they, for sure. They probably didn't see the what was it? The frontal lobe, you said. Right, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. Yeah, da- they damage. They probably didn't see it on whatever exam they did or whatnot. Right. And at that time, there also wasn't as much research about the mm-hmm. impact of head injuries on like personality changes and sure. violence as there is now. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so. I know we didn't get into the murders that he commits, but I just kind of wanted to focus today's in, um, episode on what occurred to him in prison because we don't get to see or hear a lot about what happens to these inmates in prison. But he did not have a good time uh, for the most part. He did become institutionalized, and it sounds like you know he eventually kind of thrived a little bit in prison once he got past all of the abuse he suffered from other inmates. Um, but... Anyhow, and then he got out, and he was run out of multiple towns and threatened for his life uh, multiple times. And next time, though, we'll finish up with his murder spree in upstate New York. So, there's that. That'll be a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It just keeps on going. Um, So, our social media, if you want to email us, is addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram, where we just hit 500 followers, Woo-hoo. yeah, is at Addicted to M Podcast. Um, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, Addicted to Murder Podcast. That's it, at Addicted to Murder Podcast. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, um, thanks for listening, and we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.